0: Welcome back to the How to Become a Doctor podcast. I'm Kira, a fourth-year medical student at
1: the University of Birmingham. And I'm Lucy, a third-year medical student at the University of Cambridge. On this podcast, we bring you all the information we wish we knew when applying to medicine through interviewing inspiring guests in the healthcare world, talking to organisations including the King's Fund and the GMC, and sharing our experiences as mentors and mock interviewers. No contacts in the medical field?
0: No problem, because in our Specialty Spotlight series, we are giving you guys a front row seat to interviews with doctors working in all of the different medical specialties. We find out what their day job is really like, their top tips for aspiring and current medical students, and what they would
1: tell their younger self. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at How to Become a Doctor with Dr. Spelled DR to keep up to date with everything we're doing. So, without further ado, let's jump straight into today's Specialty Spotlight. So today we're joined by Dr Lucy or Lucy and we're going to be talking about what she does in medicine and also about something really exciting which is her new book. So if I can just ask Lucy
2: to introduce herself to us all. Hi, I am officially Dr Lucy Pollock. I'm a consultant geriatrician. I work in Somerset at Musgrove Park Hospital where I've been a consultant for about 20 years.
0: Amazing. For a lot of people they might be, they might have heard of geriatrics uh, but not be 100% sure what it is. And I know when I was applying, I kind of lumped in geriatrics, palliative care, and it was all a bit of a muddle in my head um, as to what they do. But now on placement, I understand the difference. But Equally, I think it's more older patients do scare me the most on placement because I just think they're so fragile and so precious and there's so much that can go wrong. So would you be able to just,
2: let's start from scratch, what on earth is geriatrics? So geriatric medicine is... Almost the biggest specialty in the UK. Most people don't realise that. We're, we're tailing cardiology by a few consultants, but I think we're going to overtake fairly soon. And I think it's the best specialty in the UK. It's a very special specialty because you're right, Kira, they are such interesting people to look after. And older people are complicated. And, and basically, this is what's attracted me to geriatric medicine. So our role is to look after people who are older, who are often also frail. Not all old people are frail, but many are. And the people who end up in hospital and with multiple medical problems do tend to be by definition frailer. Um, And so they are a complicated bunch. Their medicine is really interesting. They often have several different conditions at once. So it's a real challenge working out which are important and which need to be sorted out and which ones you can actually leave alone. Their medications are fiendishly complicated. I never liked pharmacology as a medical student, I'll be honest. It was right down there with histopathology on my list of things that I was not keen on. But actually, it's fascinating. It is really interesting. And working out what your drugs are doing, you know, do, um, medications are the physician's knife, you know, we, we really can do a lot of good and a lot of harm with medication. So that's interesting. And they are fragile and it's easy to get things wrong so that makes it a real challenge plus you've got to take into account the whole of somebody's life and how they fit into their society and their family and or no family in some cases and that makes it fascinating as well and then finally getting it right is unbelievably rewarding there's something very lovely about doing things that may be quite simple or may be very complicated and that make a huge difference to quality of life. So it's a perfect specialty. Brilliant.
1: So what is the most common thing you see on a day-to-day basis in your job?
2: If I describe a typical day, perhaps, um, geriatricians mostly work in hospital, although there's an increasing number that work in the community as well. Community geriatricians often have a dual role uh, across the interface between primary and secondary care and may work in both settings. But for me and for most geriatricians, most of my work is with people who have become unwell in an emergency situation, and been admitted to hospital. Um, So my day might start yesterday with a ward round on our frailty unit. Uh, That is an acute medical ward where we are trying to meet people very quickly after they're admitted and really to turn them around as fast as we can. So older people don't like coming into hospital and they're right not to like coming into hospital because actually hospitals are dangerous places for older people. A lot of things can go wrong. It's a very unfamiliar environment. And um, it is usually best to try and get somebody out pretty fast. Also, you can do a lot of harm if you get it wrong at the beginning. So it's a very good idea to have a, a front door unit where older people are met by people with real expertise. And that's not just a geriatrician. The joy of my job is that I work with loads of other people. So, fantastic. Let's start with HCA's. HCA's are the absolute backbone of any hospital, and ours really know what they're doing. And good nurses, and an OT and a physio who meet somebody within hours, sometimes within minutes of their admission. Uh, Social work, discharge liaison. So, a really good team of people who are all there to help do that holistic assessment that you need. So I might see several people who've been admitted overnight. They may have come in as a GP referral or they've come in through ED. And um, sometimes some of them are very, very unwell. Some of them are not so unwell. So uh, we do a quick board round, work out who the sickest are and uh, who needs to be seen quickly, who's going to need some very quick decisions. Um, And then I go and see those patients usually with at least one junior doctor. Yeah, I say at least one one let's be realistic mm-hmm. and if i'm uh, if i'm lucky i uh, some medical students and um that's a very big part of my job i i enjoy teaching very much uh so i might have a couple of medical students with me and we go and see all our new admissions and make plans which do take some time because one of the difficulties or and the pleasures is that that geriatric medicine is complex so i will be gathering information from a lot of different places not just the admission document which says you know. Um, mechanical fall, that tells us nothing. So I really want to know why that person fell, what were the predisposing factors and so on. So a really good history. If the patient can't talk to me, I'm gonna have to make some phone calls, find out from a wife or a daughter or an ambulance man or whoever, what, ambulance man? No, ambulance uh, paramedic is what I'm trying to say. Um, And and find out a lot more about them. I'm gonna access their GP notes. I'm going to look at the notes from the mental health trust if they have a problem with dementia and see what those clinic notes say. I'm going to be looking at a lot of different radiology and a whole load of blood tests. And lots of those blood results will be abnormal. And some of the fun is working out which ones matter and which ones don't, Um, because not everything that is abnormal is important. So gathering all of that information, looking at all of the medications, working out from the long list of medications that the GP has on prescription, trying to correlate that with what the person's actually taking or hasn't taken for the last few weeks for one reason or another. That's all part of the fun. So each of those patients may take a while, but when I get to the end of that job, we've written a very careful problem list and we know exactly what steps we're going to take next. So that's very satisfying. In the middle of all of that sits a patient who may or may not be willing or able to tell me what's the most important thing to them. And I might be busy worrying about their sodium level and they are worrying about their dog. So we spend some time together working out what's important, what are the motivators, what are the worries at home, what are your future plans? And even building into that a little bit of advanced care planning, And um, decisions about resuscitation, for example. So there's a lot going on. That's the beginning of my day. (laughs) Then I might go on to a grand round, some teaching, um, or to an X ray meeting, uh, or to our own departmental education meeting. And then I might go on to teach a formal teaching session with some medical students. Or I might go to an ethics committee meeting. I've chaired our ethics committee for for many years now, and that's an interesting part of my job. Or I might um, be doing some writing or reading or thinking about service development, meeting people about what we're doing in the community, talking perhaps with the nurses that I work with who work very closely with people who live in care and increasingly having virtual meetings with GPs and a huge group of people in the community about their most frail complicated patients who often bounce in and out of hospital so trying to smooth that boundary between hospital and and home and sort out problems before they arise so there's a huge variety oh then I'm on call for medicine as well um, because I'm one of the general physicians and most geriatricians are general physicians as well. Some of them do um, an age-based uh, take, so they separate out all the frail people, and all of those are seen by geriatricians on their own separate take. In my hospital, we do a big general medical take. So when I'm on call in the evening, I might see uh, a 19-year-old with an overdose, and a 63-year-old with acute renal failure, and an 89-year-old with multiple medical problems, um, and then some more of all of that. And that's it. I find that very interesting as well. So that's. Um, that's a day. And, and you can see that that is an interesting and rewarding day.
0: Definitely. There's so much going on. You must be always thinking, always on the go. And I guess with the ageing population and so many patients being quite elderly, is there a kind of a, a cutoff? Uh, is it done by age or frailty? Because I guess uh, it's one 60 year old can be very different in terms of health
2: and you know how they function to the next. You're so right. And, and that's an ongoing debate and different hospitals do it differently. Um, And it's interesting, once you end up in settled in a hospital, you always think that everybody else does it the same as you and then you go to a conference or something and meet other people and think, oh, it's completely different. So in my hospital, we do a needs based geriatric service. So, and then you say, well, how do you decide who needs to see a geriatrician? Do you know, it's kind of a bit of magic and it's done by the admitting uh, MAU senior nurses and they work it out, or our very good liaison practitioners down in ED, they can spot frailty at 100 paces, and they select people who are going to come to our wards specifically. And we it doesn't always work, hospitals are so full, as you know, that we often don't get our patients to the right wards, and that's very disappointing, that's one of the challenges. But we try and select people who've presented with some of the, what in old fashioned terms are called the geriatric giants, which are, are things like falls, and new confusion and confusion on top of a background of dementia and people with multiple medical problems um, and frailty increasingly is recognized as an entity in itself. And those are the people that we're trying to see. Um, Similarly in outpatients, I forgot to mention that we do of course do outpatient clinics as well. And in those you often develop a very long-term relationship with somebody who may have a chronic disease such as Parkinson's disease that needs managing over many years. Somebody with heart failure who may be bouncing in and out of hospital and desperate to stay at home, so doing good outpatient work to try and keep them in one piece. Um, so again, the GP there is making the decision about who needs to see a geriatrician. Very few patients ever ask to see a geriatrician. I I, I do think, you know, most people know when they want to go and see a cardiologist. I think people haven't realized seeing a geriatrician is a good idea and you'll notice that patients don't always like being referred to a geriatrician um, and they say oh it makes me sound old and you look at their date of birth and you think yeah well you are getting on a bit so um, that's another thing that's interesting is actually building up that relationship and that trust so that people know what you're there for that you're there to see them as a whole person and take a very holistic view of their problem. I did have a
1: question actually. It was just about um, whether it's, is it a linear process? So once you've been seen by a geriatrician one time, does that then mean that the next time you go into hospital, you'll need to be seen by a geriatrician or how does that work?
2: I wish, no, I wish Lucy. I mean, it would be nice if there was the continu- continuity of care. And if we could always get somebody back even to the same ward, we have, um, at the moment we've got five wards being run by geriatricians due to winter pressures, but um. You know, it would be much better if we could always arrange that somebody sees the same team. No, and if somebody comes in with a different problem, they may end up back under a specialist such as a gastroenterologist. So, um, but even then, um, most conditions in somebody who's frailer are often managed by a geriatrician. So, this is why you know, you'd say heart failure. In younger people who've only got heart failure as their single problem, they're going to go to the cardiology ward. But somebody could have very severe heart failure and end up under the care of a geriatrician because they also have problems with dementia, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, mobility, continence and so on. And again, I think that's one of the rewards of the specialty. It means your knowledge has to be jolly broad. We call on help a lot and and we do ask our specialist colleagues for help but also they increasingly respect the fact that we have some expertise in how to apply guidelines that are developed for 60 year olds Mm. to 89 year olds because these people are different and they have different physiology and different goals and expectations so actually tailoring specialty advice to somebody with complex problems is an interesting
0: process. Do you think that um, elderly patients advocate for themselves as much as someone who is younger coming into A&E might do? Because one of the things I found on my Jerry's block was actually I felt geriatricians were some of the best advocates for their patients whereby if they were seen by other people um, they might not necessarily receive the amount of same amount of attention and uh, not being not neglected, but I don't know, sometimes I felt like patients were written off per se. I, and I don't know whether that was because people felt uncomfortable in how to
2: handle the situation. I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad that you experienced that positive experience of, of, of geriatricians being advocates. Because older people don't always speak up for themselves and there is a, a, a deference and a sort of respect for the doctor knows best and people don't like asking questions and and that persists among a great many older people having said which there are plenty of older people who are quite prepared to stand up for their rights thank you very much and that's great too but your point about other specialists being perhaps not giving people as much time I think that's a combination of a negative thing which is persistent ageism which definitely exists. But you're absolutely right. There is also a problem with people thinking, I don't actually know how to handle this situation. This old lady is too complicated. I don't know what to do. Should I introduce this new medication? Uh, Should I offer this operation to somebody who is this frail? And also, I'm not sure that she is understanding me. Can she hear me? Um, And so on. So there is another big part of our role, actually, is in educating other doctors about looking after older people almost every doctor apart from the pediatricians um, the bulk of their work is with older people and increasingly will be so so having those skills and confidence to deal with that complicated group that's that's a nice role for us to help with.
1: Mm-hmm. so you actually brought up something there that reminded me of side effects so I'm doing I'm integrating in pharmacology this year and we talk about Good
2: woman lucy that's brilliant there are not enough pharmacologists well done oh, you. thank you
1: and i'm really enjoying it and one of the things that we talk about a lot is side effect and one of the first things we're taught is that the amount of side effects that we're okay with or happy to allow depends on what you're treating so if i was giving you ibuprofen i wouldn't want the drug to be extremely cytotoxic because it's just it's not you just wouldn't want it to be. But if you're giving someone an anti-cancer drug, then the level of side effects that you are happy with to kill the cancer is a lot is a lot different. And I've never actually thought about it in terms of the patient that you might be giving the drug to. This is, is a I feel so bad that I've not thought about it in terms of the patient because if I was giving a an anti-cancer drug to maybe a 19 year old, if I was giving it to myself, I would be more than happy to have the Awful side effects for a year, so that I could live then for another, hopefully, fifty years. But what about the patients you're giving those drugs to when they're older and their lifespan is so much shorter? I, I can't believe I've not thought about it like that before.
2: But you're you're absolutely right, and it is so important to think about people's goals. A, a, a very wonderful um, geriatrician in the states, Mary Tonetti was asked you know, what do geriatricians do? And um, she, she had to think about it very hard, but she finally came up with these five M's, which really summarise it for me. And her first one is mind, and that is about mentation thinking, but also delirium, dementia, and depression, which are, are common in older people. So you start with the brain, the brain's the most important organ, everything else depends on the brain. Mobility is very important. Medications, you're absolutely right, are very important. And she has another word. Her fourth M is multi-complexity. And that's not just multi-morbidity. It's not just having lots of illnesses. It's how you fit into your society, what your challenges are at home and, and so on. And then she thought about her final M is very lovely and it is what matters most. And there, that interaction between medication and what matters most is really, really important. And you're right, you know, there are drugs that we would take that we would tolerate the side effects of because they were doing us some good in, in some way. But if your goal isn't a long life, your goal is quality of life. And if you allow patients to say, I really am valuing quality over quantity here, um, then you might change how you prescribe and it's a really complicated area because also the research isn't good enough yet we're getting better at doing research in people over 80 and they are increasingly included in trials but in many of the big trials on which huge swathes of our medications all the medication for heart failure and so on are based on studies that were done on people in their 60s and were almost always men. Interestingly, why did women get left out of drug trials? That's a good one. Um, And now extrapolating that data to people in their 80s and 90s is very interesting and challenging. And you don't want to deny people good medication but equally, you don't want to burden them with medication and an awful lot of people don't like their tablets. So uh, and actually stopping tablets is as rewarding as starting in them quite often. So so uh, a good understanding of pharmacology and understanding what the patient's goals are. That is that is good. Pharmacology. Yeah. Mm, I think
0: a nice thing to touch on would be communication and potentially how communication will differ with the elderly population and in terms of, you know, hearing impairment, visual impairment. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be able to touch on what you think um, makes a good communicator and maybe any top tips you've got? Because often people struggle with communication.
2: It's such a good question. And I wouldn't like to claim to be a good communicator, Kira. I think we're always learning. I learned a lot when I was a medical student and In my primary care attachment in gp they videoed us doing a consultation and i watched my consultation with i can't tell you how mortified i was i never stopped talking the poor patient never got a word in edgeways now i'd like to think i've got better but communication starts by what you see of somebody when i call somebody's name in clinic and they don't answer, that's where my communication has started because I know already that there's a problem with hearing or with attention. And then just watching, looking at what your patient looks like, are they contented? Are they worried, is there somebody with them? Have they got the handbag? Have they left it under their chair when they stand up because they've forgotten it? All these little tiny cues that start from the beginning. I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of my job to be honest, just the contents of somebody's bedside table when they're in hospital, gives you so much information about them. And then obviously somebody's physical appearance and then the way they choose to answer a question. So giving somebody the right question, giving them a question that, that allows them to give not the wrong answer, but the right answer, but it's not the one that they feel they should be saying. Uh, that's so important. Our patients so want to please us and will often say yes to things that, when they really mean no. So trying to phrase things in a way that allows somebody, a, a good example is medication. So somebody will pour out their medications in front of me and they go a huge, great big, you know, sway the medications all over the desk. And I will look at those medicines and I will say, Holly, that is a lot of medication. I wouldn't want to take all of those. And that gives them permission to say, well, I don't take all of them. So, you know, instead of saying, "Okay, when do you take this tablet and making that assumption that somebody is taking them? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, being very non-judgmental, I guess, isn't it? And being very much because ultimately, I think the other thing about Jerry's that hit me was, you know, actually hospital and medicine and doctors aren't necessarily always good for these patients you know maybe in younger stages yeah you can do good you can help you can cure you can treat whereas sometimes it might be just maintaining um do you ever struggle with the the fact that maybe these patients might never get back to there's a lot of talk about baseline and like a new baseline. What do you think about that?
2: That yeah, that that is it. That is a good one. So you know, people often will say to a geriatrician, "Don't you find it depressing? Frankly, you know, oh, I couldn't do your job. Isn't it? Isn't it tedious? All your patients are going to die." Actually, getting the end bit of somebody's life right is is enormously rewarding. And geriatric medicine isn't all about the end. Um, It it is quite different from palliative care. And as I say, we often have a long term relationship over many years with patients and and many of our patients are going to go on being alive for a good long time. And is it all about maintenance? There is a huge reward in restoring somebody's health when they have been properly derailed. And that can either be acutely watching somebody get better from know severe decompensated heart failure it is very nice to see them eating tea and toast in the morning but also actually slow slower processes rehabilitation is a very special area of geriatric medicine and allowing people to get have time to get better working out who's going to get better is is an interesting one um so that i I think it's, um, it's actually just rewarding that, thinking very hard about goals and about what's realistic, what can be achieved, what can't, and then allowing a person to come to terms with the fact that they may not be able to do some of the things. The big one is whether somebody has to move into care. Negotiating that transition in somebody's life and making that a good event rather than a bad one, that's, that's a challenge.
0: Mm, definitely and there's all there's lots of different things there are questions I heard being asked like do you have um a key box on the outside of your house like I would never have thought to ask questions like that or do you have a bathroom upstairs and downstairs and that's not what would we'll be asked in any but it's very different things you want to know about your patient and you mentioned earlier holistic would you be able to touch a bit more on what holistic
2: means in your case yes I I suppose it some of it is about understanding what the the patient well Some of it is understanding what their prognosis is, to be honest, and we're not always very good at that, but sometimes actually we know that somebody's got a very poor prognosis. Um, I don't know if you know this, but if you look around your hospital today, I don't know whether either of you can guess what percentage of your adult patients, i.e. over the age of 18, are going to be dead within a year. So this is for any big acute hospital, anybody that's in hospital tonight that's not obstetric and not, not psyche, okay? What percentage are going to have died before the 26th of February, 2022? I want to guess like 5%. Okay. The answer is 30%. Almost 30%. Getting on for it. And that is true in this country and and in Australia and in multiple other places where that study has been done. There was a study originally done in Scotland. And that really pulled me up short when I read that. But actually, it reminds you, people are in hospital for a reason. You go into hospital because you're sick. And of course, it is older people who are very overrepresented in that mortality statistic. So, you know, men over the age of 85 in hospital is pushing up towards 50% being, being dead in a year. And that could sound very grim, but actually it isn't. Because if you step back from it and acknowledge it, then you suddenly realize, well, what's important to this person? Is it that he wants to stay in hospital for ages, getting his heart failure perfected? Or is it that he's absolutely desperate to get home? Is it that he wants to live just long enough to see that grandchild be born? Let's really push for that. Is it that he is actually, now this is going to sound odd, is he looking forward to dying? Lots of older people actually have reached the end of a long and variably happy life, have, are contented. And if you give them the opportunity to say so, we'll say, actually, do you know, when I go to sleep at night, I wish I would just close my eyes and not wake up. That's fine. Let's talk about it. You are allowed to feel like that. We have to distinguish depression from that feeling. But, you know, that can be a completely legitimate feeling. And once you've worked that out, Then you think, well, hang on a minute. What are my treatment goals here? Why are you taking that statin? Why are you on that bisphosphonate? Why are you on the iron that's three times a day and is making you hopelessly constipated? Could we do that a different way? Why am I keeping you in hospital? Why don't we pull out all the stops to get you home where that dog or that budgie or that grandchild is? You know, it it changes your approach. So um, I've now talked so much. I've forgotten what the question was. (laughs) That's hopeless.
1: No, I think I can't actually remember what Kira asked, but you've mentioned some really key things. When I read your book, those are the key things that I pulled out about how do we create an environment where patients feel comfortable answering those questions openly and honestly and telling us what they want, not what, what they think we want to hear. What yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly that. And, and those honest conversations are very lovely moments mm-hmm. In any, in any field of medicine where, you know, where you feel that you have made a relationship that is trusting enough that somebody can say something that they wouldn't have been able to say before they came into the room. Those are, those are good moments, whatever field you're in.
0: Mm-hmm. And w- maybe we could touch a bit more on your book and maybe what inspired you to write it. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Um, Do you know, I've wanted to write it for about 25 years. I was a registrar in North London and I came out of a a day at work and I remember standing on the pavement outside the hospital and I'd had some of those big conversations with some families and I just felt that the power was in the wrong place. I felt I knew what the questions should be. I knew what I was going to ask all the questions, frankly, and I knew what the answers should be and I knew what that family should be asking but couldn't ask. And I knew what the unsaid things were and it just felt to me that the power was all mine and that was wrong. I really felt that it would have helped if those families and my patients had felt better enabled to challenge what was going on, to ask me the right questions, to feel free to have these conversations. So I kind of wanted to write the book then and to, and to explain some of the things that are challenges of aging like dementia and you know what, what's, what's common and what's normal. Those are really big questions for older people. And then of course, I didn't know enough. I was much too young I was, uh, and I needed to learn a lot more medicine and I needed to see a lot more patients. And so then for about 20 odd years, I just been thinking about it and gathering that experience but increasingly aware of those conversations that was so rewarding, that really meant you could see the relief in people's faces. And they say, oh, I wish I'd talked about this before. I wish we'd been able to talk about this before. I'm so glad you've explained that and so on. So, you know, after a while, you think, well, this is silly. I can do this one at a time for one patient at a time. But actually, it'd be much better to sit down and write a book about it. So I was very lucky. And um, I wrote the first couple of chapters and a little synopsis of what I wanted to write And and sent it off. And then amazingly, amazingly, this very lovely publisher, thank you very much, Mr. Penguin Random House, gave me a contract, which meant that I could actually take six months off work. So I had a sabbatical from work and uh had to write jolly quickly. It's you know, you have to get on with it if you're going to write a book in six months. But I I kind of had thought about it for a very long time. Uh so then I wrote it and then I went back to work, and then COVID happened. So uh, it's been an interesting year your
0: book is so important I actually have recommended all of my family members to read it because I have found that sometimes when you try and broach the topic of aging, people are very reluctant or they're like, oh, sh- sh- oh that's very morbid of you. And I'm not even discussing death. I'm just talking about aging. And and um, I think the term, oh, I'm old is, is thrown around and it's often thrown around in the sense that, oh, I'm getting old. There's nothing I can do. It's It's a downhill spiral. Do you think there's some kind of negativity or I don't know, not the best attitude around talking about ageing when actually it could be a really positive discussion. Like you mentioned, so many good, so much good can come from it.
2: Yeah, so it's such a good question. Yes, it has a very bad press getting older. And actually, you know, there are loads of books about getting old. Actually, they're all about staying young. So if you read any book about ageing, it's about how not to get old, how to stay young, what supplements you need to take, you know, how many exercises you need to do and whatever else says to stay stay young. Well, you can make that plan A, but that doesn't actually work. In the end, if you are lucky, you will get old. And somehow we've managed to present ageing as something to be avoided at all costs. Now, staying fit and healthy is, is great. You know, that's fine. Entering old age in a, in a pretty good state if you can, that's a good idea. But actually you can't avoid getting old. And there are good things about getting old, apart from its inevitability. And there's something about perspective. There's something about the way that we other older people as a society. We we have increasingly shut our older people away and COVID, oh my Lord, that has made things so much worse. But that feels very wrong to me. And this sort of um, stratification of society into age bands, I feel, is, is, is a negative thing to do. So we need to work out how we embrace some positive stuff about getting older. And one of the things that really strikes me when I talk to older people is that they have a sense of perspective that is difficult to have, perhaps, when one's young. And one of my colleagues, Peter, is is really wise about these things. He said, when something awful happens when you're young and a relationship ends or, you know, you lose a job or fail an exam or whatever, you feel as though the world's ended. It feels as though nothing can ever be good again. But I speak to my older patients, and I spoke to a, a woman yesterday, and I said, "Oh, you've, you've obviously got a lovely husband." And she said, "Yeah, he's the second one. The first one was awful. He ran away with my best friend," and and it clearly was a very terrible time for her. But she was able to look back on her life with contentment. And you know, as she said, there are bits I would never want to live again. But I have had a good life, and it's like Peter says, it's like being on a roller coaster. And when you're young, you're on the roller coaster and you don't realise when you hit the down bit that there's going to be an up bit. When you're old, you're not on the roller coaster. You're looking at the roller coaster. You can see the whole picture. And I think that perspective is very important. Older people rate their quality of life better than young people would rate their quality of life. So that's been shown in in very good studies. And not everybody's got a great quality of life. And some older people are having a very tough time. One has to recognise that. But actually a lot of older people judge their quality of life as much better than we think.
1: Mm. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how your role overlaps with palliative care and when do you start referring to palliative care?
2: Such a good question because the two specialties have grown up in parallel and the the history of palliative care, as I'm sure you're aware, has very much been rooted initially in cancer services. Mm. And really, to be honest, was focused on younger people. And there's always been a bit of tension, I think. But let's let's be honest about it. There has been tension between palliative care and geriatric medicine, because actually geriatricians look after people who are dying all the time. When I was a young doctor, a quarter of older people admitted to hospital would die during that admission. Now, that has changed a bit. We, We send a lot more people home now. But we do still look after the vast majority of people dying in hospital. And hospices represent a slightly younger population. Now, that is changing, and hospices are doing fantastic work, working with older people and people with chronic conditions and things like heart failure as well. But there still is a, a dissonance in the services. So they are very different. Geriatricians are very experienced in looking after older people who are dying, but we don't know it all for sure. And I definitely refer to palliative care. So there are complexities that arise with symptom control, with things like ascites and pleural effusions causing breathlessness and things with like complicated pain and sometimes with existential suffering we can't fix. And some palliative care doctors are so good at that. And they are also fabulous sometimes when we're stuck with a family whose expectations are very unrealistic or who love somebody old so much that they can't stand back and let them go, even when that older person actually really wants to be allowed to go. So we call on our palliative care consultants in lots of different settings, and their expertise is fantastic. You can't.
0: Yeah, I think coming to kind of end-of-life decisions, and um, it kind of brings up a lot of ethical conundrums, or things that might be more challenging than a normal, straightforward, you're in hospital, you leave hospital a few days later. Um, Would you be able to touch on some of the ethical challenges that can come with caring for older patients or just in general patients towards the
2: end of their life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, ethics... Is tied up in geriatric medicine all the time because, for example, confidentiality is such a big one. Consent is a big one. Is my patient able to consent? The big, the big three Cs of ethics are confidentiality, consent, and capacity. Well, those are with me on every ward round, Um, so they're humming along in the background all the time. Uh, And you need a working knowledge of the Mental Capacity Act and so on. But when when things become really ethically complicated and when you might need to seek external advice, that is often with Where there's uncertainty about whether you're doing the right thing. So this particularly applies when you don't know what somebody's wishes are. Um, So feeding decisions are big ones. You know, should we reach for an NG tube or even for a PEG tube in somebody who's unable, you know, hasn't got the capacity to consider that decision for themselves? A divided family. With, um, I talk in the book about, uh, I mean obviously the patients in the, in the book are all imagined patients and anonymized patients knitted together from, from lots of other patients, but uh, I talk about Frank, who, whose daughters are never going to agree about whether he should have uh, artificial nutrition and hydration, they are diametrically opposed in their view of, of what their father would have wanted. And it's very, that that sort of situation does come up. Um, so feeding decisions, decisions about surgery, should somebody very frail be put through a big operation? A really interesting one that I um, was involved with some time ago was a, a poor elderly man who had a terrible arthritic hip. It was desperately painful and he was no longer really able to walk. And he very badly wanted a hip replacement. But he had a um, coliocycle fistula, a fistula between his bladder and his colon, uh, which was completely benign, but meant that he had bacteria the whole time. He was always peeing bacteria. And surgeons, orthopedic surgeons don't like operating on people with bacteria because they worry so much about deep joint infection, which is a disaster. If you get an infection in a metal joint, that is a big problem. So quite rightly, they're worried about it. and They wouldn't do his operation. And he said, I'd rather die. Honestly, I would rather die than go on living with this. And it was very interesting negotiating that situation. When should a patient be allowed to demand something high risk? The the surgeons, obviously their data is published. Their, Their prosthetic joint infections are a measure that they are judged upon and they do not want to operate on someone who's going to get that. But what was really interesting about that situation was that it came down to information. What you needed was data because what the data shows is that actually people with UTIs do get more prosthetic joint infections, but it's not because of the bacteria in the urine. It's because the people who get prosthetic joint infections are older, diabetic, female, and overweight. And those are the people who've got UTIs. So it's all to do with confounding. And so interesting, once we'd worked that out, got the right microbiological advice, reassured the surgeon, the man got his operation. Lovely, that's really good fun doing that. Um, So the ethics can come in countless forms. Um, what other things are there? There are feeding decisions, there are DNAR decisions, there are decisions about operating, there are decisions about confidentiality, there are decisions about capacity and autonomy. And when do you decide that somebody's going to have to go into a home? How many admissions does an older uh woman have to have to hospital and discharge herself or persuade us to discharge her back to her increasingly squalid flat when she can't remember which way is up? Before we say, actually. We respect your autonomy, but mm-hmm. at this point, we are going to have to make a decision about whether you're going to go into care or not. Mm-hmm. And that is a really big, commonplace, thorny area. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's true multidisciplinary working in that one.
0: Definitely. And I think that this is a great point to touch on who you might work with. I know earlier you mentioned OT, mm-hmm. um, but for some people listening, they might not have heard of any of these different professions before. So yeah. would we be able to do a, a quick whistle-stop tour of all the amazing people that help yeah. care for your patients?
2: Yeah, who's present at, at my board, at, you know, at a board round, for example. Mm-hmm. So obviously the nurses and the healthcare assistants, as we mentioned. But the occupational therapists, the OT, those are very hands-on people. The physiotherapists. So the physio decides, works with you to improve your mobility. But the OT works on what you can do with that mobility. They're all about function. So the physio will be looking at, can you get in and out of bed or in and out of a chair? How far can you walk and can you do the stairs? And the OT is working out whether you need to do the stairs and if you can't, what are we gonna do about it? Uh, they're, they're, They're very practical. They find solutions to things. One of my patients used to fall over when she picked up the post. And the OT just stuck one of those net things on the back of the door. And you just say, oh, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have activities coordinators on some of our wards. I love them. They are so wonderful at settling somebody, talking to them, listening to them, playing games, sharing a bag of crisps together, getting out the paints. And, 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 I, and I talk about one of them who went off, and we had a really tricky old man who was so frail and wobbly and aggressive and just desperate to get out of hospital, kept fighting with everybody. And she went off and got a whole bowl full of potatoes and a potato peeler and sat him down with them. Because she'd worked out that he was in the Army catering corps. Just he just spent all day peeling potatoes, just magical stuff. And he was so contented doing that and proud of his work. And so that's the sort of person we might be working with, but we've also got other specialty nurses coming in, the respiratory specialist nurses who might be helping somebody with their inhaler technique, Um, the diabetes specialist nurses who who are great at helping us sort out complicated regimes and simplifying them and working out when it doesn't matter that somebody's getting a bit hyperglycemic because it usually doesn't matter that much. Hypo does matter. And uh, I'm trying to think who else is there. The chaplain might have come to visit. Social workers, obviously, really important part of our team. Discharge liaison team. The people who work out that when you've come in from a care home, you've come in with your specs and your dentures and your hearing aid and your um, DNAR treatment escalation form, and making sure that all of those go back to the care home at the end of your admission. So there's loads of different people involved physician assistants, obviously junior doctors. Yeah, it's a a good team. It's the ultimate team specialty, I'd say. Mm -hmm.
1: So I think coming to sort of the end of the episode now, just to round off, what do you think is the most challenging part of being a geriatrician?
2: Hmm. I think knowing when to stop. I think accepting Mm -hmm. uncertainty, being able to share uncertainty, trying to maintain one's insight. About the patient in the centre. We can get very impassioned, and sometimes we get impassioned wrongly, and we just need to step back and really listen to that patient once
0: more. I guess that's the double edged sword. You get to know your patients really well, you listen to them really well, you learn their life stories, and then, you know, I guess you might get more, not more attached per se, or more invested in them than you might do if they were just a number and they pass through your ED and then you never see them again. Um, Yeah. Okay, and then for any um, people listening who are thinking, gosh, I'd really love to potentially be, you know, pursue geriatrics if they're a medical student or if they're wanting, if they're an aspiring student, they maybe want to volunteer with the elderly um, in, in the community. Are there any top tips you've got um, that people should bear in the back of their head whenever caring for um, more elderly patients?
2: I would say enjoy it. I think Do it. Until you've spent time with older people, they can be frightening and they sometimes they don't look appealing or they may not smile at you in the way that somebody younger might do or they may behave in a frightening way because they're confused and we don't like people who behave in an odd way. And the way to get over that anxiety is to spend time with older people and to look into their eyes and to remember that they were a person just like you once and that they don't feel as though they're an old person they think they turn around and think hang on a minute what happened there how how am i 87 i was only 23 a moment ago so uh, my advice is do it and and you will find it more rewarding than you perhaps expected
0: amazing such fantastic advice to end on and I guess when you were talking then it made me realize I feel like I'm quite confident with children but maybe that's because I was a child and I had siblings now I'm getting into my early 20s I feel like adults yeah do you know what I'm okay I think because I have I will never be old and caring for an older person I just don't have that experience and empathy and knowledge of what it's like so it almost feels like I'm underqualified to even dare. do you
2: know what I mean definitely not underqualified Kira I think the very fact that you recognise that that could be an issue, it means that you're eminently qualified to, to spend time with older people. I wouldn't worry about it for a second. Amazing
1: job. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more, be sure to check out all of our previous episodes, rating from our highly popular OpenPods, UCAP, BMAT and into your advice and even more. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at
0: How to Become a Doctor with Dr Spelt DR for more. And be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.